Well, as we remain standing, let us pray. Gracious Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts this, this day, that you would uh, plant within us your word, that you would strengthen us and grow us, that we might be more like Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes of his constant desire to give thanks to God because he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul is praising God because in Jesus, God has made his people citizens of a different kingdom. Instead of being ruled by sin, we are under Christ's eternal rule. A reading from 1 Samuel today, however, shows us that at times the people of God are reluctant citizens at best. The people of Israel had been chosen by God to be a unique nation. It was their calling to be witnesses to God and to point other nations back to him. Well, as it turns out, Israel faced an issue that we continue to struggle with today. God continues to call a people to be citizens of his kingdom, but like the ancient Israelites... Those he calls are often reluctant to embrace their new citizenship. So today we want to look at this reluctance, our desire to live as the other nations do, as everyone else does, and what the antidote to our reluctant citizenship is. As I mentioned, God had chosen Israel. He then led them out through the desert into the promised land. And when they get there, they go through a period that was uh, up and down, let's say. You can read about that in the book of Judges sometime. And so the people start looking around at the, the nations that they're surrounded by. They see strong kings who provide for their people and fight on their behalf. Up to this point... Those are the very things that God has done for Israel, but they don't give him the credit for it. Looking at the other nations, Israel demands a king of their own, rejecting God's rule. Samuel lays this out for us. In 1 Samuel 8, we read, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, from being king over them. Samuel goes on to warn the people that this king that they want will not provide for them, but will become a tyrant. And the people respond by saying, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Israel is rejecting God because they want to be like everyone else. They don't want to be set apart. They don't want to be a different kind of nation. And we want to wrap our heads around that truth 
because we continue to struggle with this. In Jesus, God has called a people to be different, to be set apart from the rest of the world so that through them, people might know him. That's what the church of Jesus Christ is called to be. As Paul wrote, we're called to be citizens of the kingdom of Jesus. As such, we are meant to reflect kingdom values, but in our hearts, we don't want to be different. We look at others, and life seems to be going well for them, so why do we need to be any different? Why do we have to live a different sort of life? Why can't I tell a little white lie on my taxes? After all, I can spend my money a whole lot better than the government can. It's the first amen I've ever gotten from this congregation right there. Why does the church have to have such prudish sexual ethics? Why do I have to love my enemy? Why can't I just ignore my enemy? After all, other people don't seem to follow these rules and their lives seem to be going okay. And if all their lives seem okay, why do I need to be different at all? God, why do I need you as king? The non-believer is a great life. Why can't I have that? The problem is that all these seemingly little rejections of God reveal a greater problem. They're symptoms of our desire to reject God's lordship over every part of our life. We want a different king. We think we know better than God what is good for us. And like Israel, we demand a different king. One we think will provide for the life that we want. And so we set up the things of this world as our king. Maybe it's the cultural norms of our time, being on the right side of history. Maybe we're ruled by the need to have the newest and biggest and shiniest stuff. Often the masters we choose aren't bad things in and of themselves. Tim Keller points out for us that the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. The problem that all of this points to, of course, is the problem of idolatry. Serving and worshiping anything other than Jesus. Anything other than Jesus. Idolatry is the driving force behind our desire to reject God as our king and master and to live as if we are citizens of this world rather than citizens of his kingdom. So what's the antidote to our reluctant citizenship? How do we get rid of these idols that plague us? Well, Like in so many other aspects of life, the first step is admitting you have a problem. The first antidote is repentance. 
Samuel confronts the people with what they are doing, and it finally hits them in verse 19. They say, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. That's where sin leads, friends. Death. Idolatry is sin, and sin leads to death. And when we're confronted with our own idolatry, our own sin, we have two options. We can either dig in our heels and say that we have no problem at all. Pretend like nothing is wrong, that we're not hooked on something. That's the behavior of an addict. To continue through life as if we're not hooked on anything at all. Everything's just fine. There's no problem at all. And make no mistake, we are addicted to sin. And without the grace of Jesus, we will never be free of sin. We can't save ourselves. We cannot free ourselves. Samuel, though, teaches us that it is God's heart to graciously free us from our addiction to sin. Samuel's honest with the people. He doesn't pull any punches. He says you've sinned. You've committed evil acts. But sin is not the final word. There's another option. Verse 20, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Our idols are empty and hollow masters. They cannot satisfy. They cannot deliver. And yet, in the vain hope that one just might sometime, we go after one, and then another, and then another, and on and on it goes. But in his grace, it is God's good pleasure to make a people for himself to receive his people back when we repent of our idolatry and submit to his kingship. And in him, we find the only king that can actually satisfy. The only master that genuinely wants our good. And so we need repentance. Acknowledge that it is our nature to reject God because in our pride we think we know better than God. We will all sin against the Lord, my friends, and so we need repentance. But sin doesn't have the last word. In Jesus, God made the way for us to leave idolatry behind to become citizens of his kingdom. So that's the first antidote, repentance. The second is found in one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. 1 Samuel 12, 23. When someone asks me what it is that a pastor is called to do, this is the verse that I quote for them. It says this, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. That right there, in a nutshell, is what a pastor is called to do. That is what I am called to do, to pray for my people and instruct them for as long as the Lord sees fit to keep me in leadership. It also contains two of the antidotes to our reluctant citizenship. Prayer being the first. Prayer 
is crucial for living as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Because at its most simple level, prayer is a conversation. We are simply talking with God. And how do you get to know someone? You talk to them, right? You spend time with them in conversation. And as you get to know them, you actually start to become a little like them. Have you noticed that when you're around someone a lot, you start to pick up their little phrases that they use? I could rattle off, I don't know how many of the go-to statements from friends and family of mine throughout the years. If you spend enough time around me, chances are you're going to pick up some of my sayings. You're going to say things like, faithful things grow, or one of the other countless sayings that I am constantly using. I'm not that original. You see it in married couples, right? You spend so much time together, you start to sound alike, you even start to look alike a little bit, right? I can't tell you how many times I've looked at my wife and noticed we just happened to both be wearing a green shirt and blue jeans that day. We didn't plan it. It just happened. We started dressing alike. It's the real reason why I wear vestments on Sunday, so you can tell the difference between us. (laughs) The point is this. As we spend time with people, we become like them, for good or for ill. And the same is true when we spend time with God in prayer. Samuel knows the importance of prayer, and so he prays for his people. If you want to start reflecting Jesus more and more in your life, spend time with him in prayer. Talk to him. Get to know him. The amazing thing is, it doesn't just change our relationship with Jesus, but with one another as well. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say there is at least one person in your life that you struggle a little bit with. Maybe you don't get along with so well. Pray for them. It's a good friend of mine. He's now a good friend. We met in seminary. When we first met, I couldn't stand the guy. I didn't even want to be in the same room as him. He drove me crazy. I'm sure I did the same to him. I never asked. But I prayed for him. Not to give myself credit, I had somebody else tell me I should pray for him. And in praying for him, the Holy Spirit changed my heart towards him. And now we're good friends. I saw him differently. It's as William Law points out to us. There is nothing that makes us love someone so much as praying for them. Prayer is the engine that drives our relationship with God. In it, we are in conversation with our king and we start to become more like him. We become more concerned with looking or acting or speaking like him than we are with whatever idol has been in our life up until then. It's why, as a church, we need to be praying. It's why we're starting things like Tuesdays at 2, to get people praying so that we could begin to see our citizenship in his kingdom and not in the kingdom of the world. Here's the second thing that Samuel brings out for us. I will instruct you in the good and the right way. How can he do that? Because he knows God. Because he's learned about God and he's done it through scripture. The people of Israel sinned greatly against the Lord by rejecting his rule. And Samuel's answer is pretty simple. Prayer and instruction. 
He's saying, let's talk to God so we can be more like him. And let's go back to what God has taught us, what he's revealed to us, so that we might know how to live. That is what the word of God does for us. It teaches us about Jesus and how he wants us to live in the world. I don't know about you. There's been countless times in my life where I've thought, I wish God would just speak. I wish he would just show me how I am supposed to live in the world. And all so often, there's a Bible sitting right beside me as I'm saying it. In scripture, God teaches us who he is and what he desires for his people. He points us back to Jesus. Now, to be clear, Scripture is not a, not a how-to book. Rather, it shows us Jesus and the values of his kingdom. In reading Scripture, the Holy Spirit applies those values to our lives and shapes how we live. Rather than answering a specific question like, say, which charity should I give to or what job should I take, Scripture at, at Scripture answers things like, what does God think about relating to the world? What does he think about relationships or what we should do with our money or morality? It helps us to think through particular issues and make decisions as we are shaped by the kingdom values, which we are then to reflect to a non-kingdom world. We learn, for example, that God actually greatly values giving to charity and to those in need. And so we take that value and decide with our own heads whether we want to give to charity A or charity B. We get into trouble when we treat the Bible as if it's life for dummies rather than the story of Jesus and his kingdom. Do you see the difference in those approaches? Do you see why it matters? If you don't, come and ask me afterwards. I'd be happy to talk about it more. Here's the point. As we spend time in Scripture, we learn more about who Jesus is and how he would have us live. And so we go about our lives then shaped by what Scripture has revealed to us. And so our decisions about all things can be in line with the principles and motivations that God would have for us. It keeps us from sinning keeps us from seeing ourselves as citizens of this world. It says, the psalmist says, I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We can't store God's word in our heart unless we spend time in his word. And as we do, we are guided and governed by his word to live as citizens of his kingdom. One last antidote for our reluctant citizenship. We're going to dissect verse 24 a little bit for this one. We start by reading, only fear the Lord. Well, that doesn't really sound like someone as I, I want as king in my life. I don't really want to be afraid of my king. Well, here's the thing. Fear in scripture is not about feeling afraid of God, but rather giving wholehearted commitment to him. If we go back to verse 20, Samuel kind of lays it out for us. He says, do not be afraid, but serve the Lord with all your heart. That's what fear of the Lord is all about. It's about giving God all of who we are. And that's the appropriate posture to have because God is the only one deserving of all that we are. That's where God differs from our idols. 
Both God and idols demand complete commitment and allegiance. The difference is God can deliver on what he promises. God can satisfy the longings that we have. And so God asks us for all that we are for our betterment. And in us serving God with all that we are, there's a word for that. It's worship. And serving God with our whole heart, we are worshiping him. And it's in worship that we begin to experience freedom from our idols. So long we have sought satisfaction from the things of this world, but it is only in a worshipful relationship to Jesus that we actually begin to be satisfied. It's the last antidote. Worship. In worship, we are shaped, philosopher James Smith reminds us, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, and to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all. In other words, we crave the kingdom of God. We crave him. In worship, we express our gratitude to God and are reminded of what Jesus has done for us. That's what Samuel's getting at at the end of verse 25. Consider what great things he has done for you, he says. It's in worship we're reminded of these great things. We're reminded again of our own sin, but also of Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death. We are reminded of our need for him and that in his goodness and mercy, he acted on our behalf. That's what the fear of the Lord, wholehearted commitment, creates in us. Genuine worship. And genuine worship frees us from idols. We cannot worship God genuinely while worshiping other things. We are freed for them as we remember, as we consider the great things he has done for us, as we consider Jesus, as the author of Hebrews admonishes us to. It is Jesus' desire to have a people set apart for himself, to have a people freed from the idols of our heart. And so he gives us the gifts of repentance, prayer, scripture, and worship. As we repent, as we pray and spend time with God, as we learn of him in his word, and as we praise and worship him for the great things he has done by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are made citizens of his kingdom. And we reflect his kingdom to the world. You know what that leads to? It's the middle of verse 24. Serve him faithfully with all your heart. Faithfulness. As God changes us, he makes us faithful to him. And to use a saying you may have heard before, faithful things grow. We will sin, so we need to repent. We need to be in a relationship with our God, so we need to pray. We need to learn about Jesus, so we need to be in his word. We need to respond rightly to our God, and so we worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And by God's grace and love, we are given the antidote to our reluctant citizenship and made to live in love in a way that shows we know who the king truly is. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us the gifts of repentance, prayer, scripture, and worship. We pray, Lord, that you would use these things to change our hearts, that we might be fully committed to you, that you would, we would fear you the way that we should, that we would praise you for your goodness and love for us, for your gracious work in Jesus. And we pray that you would change us, that others might see your kingdom and how we live and how we speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.